Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Amaphodon. Thanks for tuning in. In Charlestown, residents are sliding back into their groove with the reopening of the McCarthy Playground. On Monday, Mayor Wu joined fourth graders from Warren Prescott Elementary School for McCarthy Playground's ribbon cutting. The popular neighborhood park revealed several new features, which include equipment for two to five-year-olds and five to 12-year-olds, renovations to the hockey and basketball courts, and upgrades to lighting, fencing, and drainage systems. Charleston residents took part in four community meetings to discuss their needs for the $1.5 million playground renovation. <laughs> Judging by the big smiles from children and parents, McCarthy Playground is hitting all the marks. As a mother of two, it's very important for me to have safe playgrounds um, for both of my kids. It's a place for them to socialize, for me to socialize, for me to become part of the community. I've seen them both develop such important skills, you know, climbing, um, like gross motor skills, emotional skills, developmental skills. It's just so important uh, for, for all of us. This space, this resource is vital. Each one of my three kids has a different favorite thing here at this playground. You know, whether it's being in the playground, playing basketball, walking our dog in the green space, and just being together. So when you look back on the last couple of years and what we've been through as a community, having a space like this is vital for their socialization, for their happiness, and for our whole community to congregate in ways that are safe and really pleasant. This will be the place there's something for everyone. Bring your, your babies here to, to swing in, in the swings and watch them run around the, the play area for older kids, shoot some hoops, shoot some pucks, or, or just walk around and sit and enjoy the, the calm of this amazing little green space in, in the heart of our cities. Over in Alston, merchants and vendors lined streets as residents enjoyed one of the neighborhood's signature events this weekend. Hundreds enjoyed a taste of Alston this weekend at the street festival on Harvard Ave. Local business vendors from all over the area came to showcase the best that Alston has to offer. People of all ages enjoyed the festival's performances, merchants, and community connections. The festival highlighted the diversity of Alston and the wide range of talented individuals that contribute to the culture of the city. Here we are together on this beautiful October day and the weather couldn't be better and everybody's smiling and it's people we're, we're seeing old friends and new friends and um, just just absorbing this great um, community spirit that we have and it's so much needed after our long haul with COVID and we're, we're, we're getting back together you know we've been hungering for this. Yeah I think it's really important for people to get out to, to events like this to really understand kind of all of the different places and people that Alston has to offer in, in one small venue. Um, I think it's really easy sometimes to forget about kind of the different types of people, the different types of shops and things to do there are in Alston when you have your set routines and it's nice to get out in a venue like this where it's all so close together and you can see kind of all the different interests, all the different backgrounds aligning in one space. It's a beautiful day. It's wonderful to see uh, all the creative folks out selling their wares and just bringing together a sense of community. After a couple difficult years for everyone, I think it's easy to forget that, you know, the neighbors that you have around you are, are great people. Um, and, you know, you've got all these great businesses and food and art and all sorts of fun stuff around. And, and it's easy to, you know, forget that these people are around. So having events like this are great. 
because it gives you a chance to come together, uh, you know, enjoy things as a community, and just remember all the great people that you live by. Beep, beep. Boston's visitors will now have the opportunity to learn about all the city has to offer thanks to the Boston Visitor Center on Wheels. Looking for the next best thing to do in town? Look no further than the Boss Mobile Visitor Center. Residents and visitors can now learn about community information and events through the new mobile van that can be found around town. The mobile resource was greeted with excitement at its unveiling on Wednesday. This visitor center on wheels will be able to get into 23 neighborhoods, activate where our visitors are um, going in terms of experiencing a total cultural inclusion that is uh, the city of Boston. So we're happy to be in every neighborhood. Similar to the Boston Common Visitor Center, this mobile resource brings community events and happenings to the forefront by providing information about the exciting things happening in the city. Still to come, disability rights activists rally to sway Massachusetts courts against legalizing physician-assisted suicide. Match sticks, match box, matching tie to matching socks. You don't know why, but you're really special. To match point, match game, you and I are not the same, but I can tell that you're really special. To there is something I can give to make you laugh, to help you live. The perfect match, and you're really special to me. We're the perfect match and you're really special to me. Welcome back. In downtown Boston, advocates against court-ordered assisted suicide fought to maintain the place of legislature and deciding the fate of this complicated issue. Outside the John Adams Courthouse Thursday was a quiet fight for dignity. Disability rights advocates from Second Thoughts, Massachusetts, and Not Dead Yet, held a rally to oppose court-ordered assisted suicide. Their presence stems from the 2016 case Kligler v. Healy, in which Dr. Roger Kligler, a retired physician battling prostate cancer, argued it is unconstitutional to prosecute doctors who supply lethal medication to terminally ill adults. Suffolk County Court rejected his lawsuit, maintaining assisted suicide is manslaughter, but the plaintiff appealed the ruling to the Supreme Judicial Court, which is now hearing oral arguments. End of life is a complex issue, yet advocates from today's rally stand firm that having a disability or terminal illness is not synonymous with a low-quality life. I'm someone who actually originally was all for assisted suicide until I learned that it's all about disability and that the uh, top reasons in Oregon um, were actually about disability, about fear of depending on others, loss of control, um, loss of dignity. And this is, is really all about perpetuating an ableist bias in our society. We all have an inherent dignity and worth and we don't lose that when we become ill or older or disabled. According to a Harvard study, 82.4% or so of physicians across the United States think that disabled people automatically have a lower quality of life than non-disabled people. And those are the same biases that result in disabled people being coerced towards assisted suicide and being denied care for mental health and depression um, and other such issues. And we are a group of disabled people here um, who live very happy lives. Obviously being disabled comes with its challenges. It's not all sunshines and rainbows. Um, 
but our lives have value. We are capable of happiness and we shouldn't have our lives um, taken away just because other people don't see that. Assisted suicide as an issue belongs in the legislature where people can advocate and lobby our legislators. Just like uh, the judge at the superior court level ruled three years ago. We do not think that this issue should be decided by seven elites with a research staff. We also are talking about that this issue is all about disability. All the reasons out in Oregon and California are because people are distressed about their increasing dependence as their disease progresses. Whether it's loss of autonomy, feeling like a burden, incontinence, loss of so-called dignity. We're here to say that we uh, demand equal rights and equal protection under the law. To further explore the nuances of this debate, we invited Jules Good, Assistant Director, Policy Analysis at Not Dead Yet, to talk with BNN. They are late deaf and multiply disabled. Not Dead Yet is a national grassroots disability rights group that opposes legalization of assisted suicide and euthanasia as deadly forms of discrimination against old, ill, and disabled people. Here's our conversation. biggest misconceptions about assisted suicide is that it's a bodily autonomy issue that's about individual choice. Um, but what that outlook really ignores is that individual choice is not often up to the most vulnerable or the most marginalized patients. It's up to insurers predominantly and also up to hospitals and physicians. Um, and so what we really want people to understand about this issue is that it's more than just um, you know, an issue of personal choice at the end of life. Um, a lot of it is a public health and anti-discrimination issue as well, particularly against those in the disability community. Um, another misconception about assisted suicide is that people choose to pursue assisted suicide because of physical pain at the end of life. Um, but what we've actually been finding from the most recent um, data reported in Oregon um, which is a state where assisted suicide is legal, um, is that the top five most prevalent reasons that people choose assisted suicide at the end of life um, is not because they're in physical pain, but because they have um, socio-emotional concerns about disability. So they're afraid to lose their autonomy. They feel like they're going to suffer a loss of dignity because of certain symptoms such as incontinence and loss of independence. Um, and so what we hope to impart to people is that disabled people's lives have value and we're not better off dead than disabled, um, which is unfortunately a misconception that a lot of people have that leads them into uh, promoting assisted suicide. Why is it so important to stand against this issue? There are people who believe that a terminally ill patient has the right to end their life as long as it's their choice. What's your response to this? Well, the first thing I want to say is that for people who are terminally ill, who are really truly at the end of life and who are in a lot of pain, there are other options that are available for them apart from assisted suicide, such as palliative sedation, where somebody can be sedated to a point that they no longer feel physical pain while the dying process takes place naturally. So that's one, one point to cover. Another thing to know 
is that um, oftentimes the idea that it's a personal choice that other people don't have influence over is kind of an illusion. Um, for example, there have been cases of people um, that we've seen coming out of Oregon and Washington who, for example, their insurance company denied coverage for a life-saving treatment, but approved coverage for assisted suicide. So at that point, are you actually able to make a choice or is the insurance company making the choice for you? Mm -hmm. Those are the types of dangers and exploitations that can occur as a result of our privatized um, medical industry. And that's why kind of the concept and the policy of assisted suicide and our current medical landscape really don't um, mesh together in a way that promotes true safety and autonomy for people. There's also a huge lack of uh, enforcement. So even though a lot of times assisted suicide advocates will push for safeguards to be added to the law, um, those safeguards don't do any good if they're not being enforced by anybody. Um, and so, for example, um, you know, the idea of um, making having safeguards in place that are supposed to make it so that somebody isn't being coerced um, into pursuing assisted suicide um, there's really no way to to enforce things like that and so it's it's not a law that can be improved once it's been passed um, if it's passed the danger is still there all right. And in Massachusetts, a lot of the conversation is revolving around the Kligler v. Healy case. Uh, would you be able to walk us through uh, this civil lawsuit and what is at stake in the current arguments uh, around it? Sure thing. Um, so basically, short summary of Kligler v. Healy, um, there is a Dr. Robert Kligler who brought this case up um, in 2016. Um, he has cancer and um, basically wants to make it legal for him to die in the manner and at the time that he so chooses without the doctor facilitating that death being held legally liable um, in a criminal sense. Um, and the case has kind of escalated to the point where it's become a question of is assisted suicide a constitutional right? Um, and what we have found over and over again, both in other states where cases like this have been heard, and also even in the Suffolk County Court at earlier stages in this case, is that assisted suicide is absolutely not a constitutional right. Um, there's really no basis for it in the letter of the law. And also, this is an issue that should be decided in the legislature and not by a handful of judges who aren't representative of all of the different kinds of people who this would impact um, if the policy is passed. There are no easy answers to this debate um, and topic, but what are your hopes for individuals who are just starting to learn more about um, medically, uh, medical assistance in dying or um, assisted suicide? My hope is that people will take the time to learn about the ways in which this is a systemic issue and an issue of disability rights and justice and not just looking at it from the framework of individual rights and autonomy. Um, you know, as we've seen with even the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, 
when we think about something like mask wearing as uh, an individual autonomy issue, um, it makes more sense for people to not want to choose to do it. But when we think of it as a public health issue where we're putting other people at harm, even unintentionally by not wearing a mask, um, it makes a lot more sense and it's a lot more compelling to understand why masking is important. By the same token, legalizing assisted suicide um, might make sense as a practice for a very narrow and well-protected um, portion of the population. Um, but when we zoom out and look at those who are the most vulnerable to um, bias and prejudice in the medical industrial complex, um, people who are most vulnerable to mistreatment, those who are really on the margins um, of our society and culture, um, it makes a lot more sense not to pass assisted suicide to protect those less privileged people. And for people who would like to learn more or support the work that's happening at Second Thoughts Massachusetts or Not Dead Yet, how can they do so? Yeah, so folks can visit um, the website of either organization. So Second Thoughts is at second-thoughts.org, and that's the word second-thoughts.org. And then Not Dead Yet um, is, is the organization that is handling this more on the national scale, so outside of just Massachusetts. And we're at uh, notdeadyet.org. So if you head to our websites, you can also find links to our social media, um, to other publications that we have, other ways that we've collaborated um, with other organizations. Um, and there are also links on both websites where you can get involved. So if you live in Massachusetts, uh, highly recommend checking out the Second Thoughts website, um, getting in touch with us, and uh, we would be happy to welcome more people uh, into learning about this issue and getting involved. Our next guest's passion for literature has inspired thousands. Deborah Z. Porter is founder of the Boston Book Festival, the largest public literary event in New England. Boston Book Festival started as a one-day event in and around Copley Square in 2009 and expanded to Nubian Square in 2018. Deborah has reviewed books for Kirkus Reviews, WBUR Online, Ruminator Review, Harvard Review, and Horn Book. Previously, she founded and managed a nonprofit organization Career Paths, a summer internship program for BPS students. I had the joy of connecting with Deborah about this year's upcoming Boston Book Festival on October 29th and its exciting lineup. Enjoy the interview. All right, well, I am so excited. Uh, we have the Boston Book Festival, which is right around the corner. Can you get us started by sharing the origins of Boston Book Festival? What exactly inspired you to create this event? Sure, well, I had um, attended the master's degree program at, um, in the children's literature at Simmons University. And when I graduated, I was reviewing books for a number of publications. And then I thought that, you know, maybe I could do something a little more challenging. And I looked into starting a lecture series. But then a friend told me that Boston was one of the very few major cities in the world that didn't have a book festival, you know, a public event to celebrate books. And I thought, that's it. That's perfect. That's what I'm going to do. How hard could that be? <laughs> so um, I decided uh, to, to do that and um, took a couple years to figure it out to figure out what what that entailed but um you know it happened first year was 2009. 
Excellent. And the festival is now celebrating its 14th year. How has it evolved over the years and what can attendees expect from this year? Well, the very first year in 2009, we um, had more attendees than we had space. So every year we seemed to add a new venue to accommodate all the people that wanted to come. The second year we added Trinity Church and then eventually we added Church of the Covenant and then we added Emmanuel Church and then we added the Boston Architectural College. So by 2019, we had, um, I don't know, we probably had 30 venues going simultaneously um, wow. throughout the day. And uh, this year, because of the uncertainties around COVID and because we haven't put on a live festival in two years, we've um, shrunk the footprint a little bit. So we don't have um, Trinity Church or Emmanuel Church anymore, but we do have the library and Old South Church and Church of the Covenant and the Boston Architectural College. And we're in, we've invited more than 200 uh, presenters um, so, um, it's going to be just as exciting as it's ever been. I love that. Uh, so Boston Book Festival is happening on October 29th. It's essentially an all day event, but we also have the Boston Book Festival prologue. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Sure. These are a series of events in the week leading up to the BBF. Uh, they're meant to generate excitement the book festival and um they're a lot of fun they're sort of you know unusual events maybe a little different than uh, the kinds of things you'll see at the book festival so there's a um book hunt the bbf book hunt is taking place um, as usual uh, where people can follow clues uh to find clues on social media to find books that have been hidden around town at literary sites and then Newtonville Books and Newton Center is hosting a fun animal trivia and scavenger hunt. Uh, J.P. Licks um, in, in Jamaica Plain is, is hosting an event. So ice cream and books, that's a great combination. And then finally, um, GBH is hosting a session of stories from the stage with some of our BDF authors. Um, on Thursday evening. And there's quite a variety as you as you talked about. Um, and, you know, with the fiction, the nonfiction, you have local authors and uh, authors from all over the country and abroad. Uh, I'm always interested in uh, favorite books. Do you have a favorite book and why? Well, my, my favorite book um, of all time is um, George Eliot's Middlemarch and you know, pretty much all the books by George Eliot. I, I, um, I'm such a fan that my younger daughter named her daughter Eliot <laughs> after George Eliot. But um, I discovered George Eliot when I was in my late 20s and I just devoured everything. Silas Marner, Daniel Deronda, Adam Bede. And um, I just felt that even though those books were written in the 19th century, that they had a lot to say about human nature and relationships and that they are relevant to modern life. So so those are sort of my, my touchstones as, as favorite books. Hmm. And to switch gears a little bit, uh, there's a new report out from American Library Association uh, talking about the banning of books. Unfortunately, that is on the rise. In 2022 alone, 1,651 titles were targeted. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of unrestricted reading and the importance of festivals such as this one? Right. You know, I, I think the goal of education is um, 
to teach kids to learn to think for themselves. And when you ban books, you are trying to really prevent that from happening. And obviously, it's you know these, it's a very politically motivated um, action to ban a book. But and and of course, um, sometimes the, the the banning has the opposite effect because if you if you tell a kid that um, a book is too dangerous for them to read, then of course they're going to want to read it even more. Um, but I think you know I think book festivals are just sort of a, a you know placing a, a a flag down that we're you know we're in favor of books written by. Uh, diverse authors with diverse topics, um, and we don't believe that that um, that books should be should be banned. And we think people should have the right, and including children, to 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 pick the books they want they want to read. There's a lot of variety in the sessions offered at Boston Book Festival this year. Which of the upcoming sessions are you excited about? The, you know, we have some really amazing keynotes. Um, the nonfiction keynote is Bessel van de Kolk, whose book uh, is um, The Body Keeps the Score. And that's a sort of been a publishing sensation. It's, it's came out in 2015, but has only only hit the New York Times bestseller list a couple of years ago, but it's been consistently on the bestseller list. It's a book about dealing with trauma. Um, and it really has hit a chord in, in, in the, um, the culture. Um, our, our fiction keynote is going to be amazing. It's Yi-Yun Lee and Gish Jen, uh, who will be um, interviewed by Claire Massoud. So that, that's going to be really interesting. Um, we have a session on how to live with um, a variety of people who, who talk about what, what it means to, to live a good life, how you can live with joy and contentment and purpose. Um, and that I, I think that will be super interesting. And then we have a bunch of memoir sessions uh, that that you know is a, are always really popular. I think this year is a little different because we are presenting more genre fiction. We have more. We have some romance fiction okay. authors and um, uh, a lot of fantasy and young adult novels and even some horror. Um, so there's there's really a, a lot to a lot to choose from. Great. And for viewers who are interested in learning more and attending the festival, how can they do so? By going to our website, bostonbookfest.org. There's all the information you need, and you can even go through the archives and watch a slideshow from a previous book festival. Um, but, but the schedule is up there, so you can plan your day. Um, it's a good idea to plan your day ahead of time, because um, there's a lot going on. Thanks for tuning in, Boston. As a reminder, you can stream or watch the news on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be rebroadcast at 9.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, Astound Channel 15, and Fios Channel 2161. For BNN News, I'm Faith Hamafidon. I'll see you next Friday.